Hi, this is Dr. Paul Sachs. I'm editor-in-chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, and this is the OFID podcast, and that's OFID, not OFID. Today, I'll be chatting with Chris Stolarski. He's the Associate Director of University Communication at Marquette University. The reason I came to know about Chris is that he recently wrote a vivid and truly terrifying account of his nearly one-month hospitalization from COVID-19, an account that should be required reading for anyone who doubts the seriousness of this disease and indeed anyone who's involved in healthcare today. We'll get to that experience shortly, but first, Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So, so tell us a little about yourself. What do you do, your family, et cetera? Um, sure. Um, like you mentioned, I work at Marquette University. I do uh, primarily internal and corporate communications for uh, Marquette, which is a uh, medium-sized Catholic Jesuit university here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I am originally from. Spent most of my life living here. I live just south of the city mm-hmm. on the shores of Lake Michigan with my wife and our 17-year-old miniature dachshund, Peter. Oh, oh my. I had dachshunds growing up. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've, this is our third one. And uh, he is defying all odds. 17 years. I have a dog also, but we're going to not talk about dogs. We're going to talk about COVID. And I kind of want to ask you as a non-physician, when was it that you first realized that this was a serious thing? Do you recall that it entering your consciousness? Oh, for sure. So I, I mentioned I, I handle internal comms for, for Marquette. And those who aren't in the higher ed industry may not know how hard hit we got with, mm. with this. Our student population is residential. Uh, so, you know, we really pay attention to these public health issues. And so it was in probably late February that we assembled a, a response team. And I was part of that response team. So daily meetings. And yeah. <laughs> interestingly enough, these were meetings. I mean, we, we had two dozen people. And it was, so it's horribly ill-advised at this point in the pandemic. But at that point, um, you know, we, we still didn't really have a case in, in the state of Wisconsin. And if we fast forward to the fall of 2020, and I remind listeners that this is before we had vaccines and when COVID-19 cases were increasing rapidly throughout the country, so in, in the fall of 2020, what happened initially to you? And, and when did you suspect you might have contracted COVID? So it was shortly after the election, I remember. And uh, I had a little tickle in my throat, but it wasn't anything. It could have been reflux. I, I didn't even think of it as COVID at the time. But I woke up on a Friday morning and knew right away. It was clearly a cold of some variety, but the fever was the tipping mm. off clue. I've never gotten a, a fever with a cold in my life. And it was also at that point, November was horrific. Yeah. It was actually the, the peak here in Wisconsin. I knew <laughs> I didn't want it to be COVID. I, I, I tried to stay calm and say, you know, this could very well be a cold. It is that season. Um, but I went and the very next day, I got tested, um, waited a while for my results. I didn't get my results until that subsequent Wednesday. Mm, gosh. So it was a good leg. But by, by Monday, I didn't need the results. I mean, yeah. I, it had all of the trappings of COVID. The only thing I never got was a loss of smell or taste. Hmm. Interesting. It's, it's fascinating how these symptoms vary from person to person to person. Um, how about your wife? Um, she, she got about the mildest case of COVID humanly possible. She just got over a cold that was far worse and lasted longer than the COVID she got last year. Yeah, colds can really be lousy. But your case of COVID started out your home. It it started off mild. Through day five, I was fine. It seemed like I was going to ride this out at home like most people. 
it was day six oxygen sat dump it was pretty much like a switch wow and you must have been at least periodically checking in with your doctor your nurse i hadn't been honestly it just it was so like run-of-the-mill based on what you've everything you've read about covid or friends and family who've had it it it, it just seemed so ordinary you know for covid there wasn't that great a concern at the moment i did start to monitor my blood oxygen when breathing became more difficult so like i said that was around day six yeah. But you might have read this or heard this, but we now realize there are these two phases of the illness. And when people have a severe case, that second phase doesn't start until five to 10 days after symptoms start. And that's exactly what happened to me. Yeah. And then you must have made the decision either to go to the emergency room or get directly admitted. How did that work out for you? So it was actually the day I got my test results. It was a Wednesday and I, the oxygen was was struggling a bit. It would drop down to about 90 when I would walk, just like going to the bathroom, but it would bounce back rather quickly. So I was concerned, but not alarmed, I guess I'd say. Mm. So I went to the ER just to be safe. They did a chest film. They said, yeah, we see some infiltrations, but you know, compared to what we're seeing, you're okay. So they gave me a steroid, some Tylenol, what, whatever else they gave me and sent me on my way. They said, mm. you are not, you are not sick enough to be hospitalized. Within 48 hours, I was in an ambulance. Mm. So it was a Friday. It was Friday the 13th of all things. <laughs> and I had my wife call the ambulance and that was it. I, I left the house and I thought this could be the last time I leave this house. And when you got to the hospital the second time, they must have immediately realized you needed to be admitted. Oh, yeah. There was a rush. And <laughs> on top of it, at this point, I'm panicking. Mm. So I'm having a full-blown panic anxiety sure. attack. So my heart rate was really elevated. And so that got them concerned that I had a blood clot. So they, mm. they were concerned about a PE at that point. So first thing they did was take me over for a CAT scan and that came back negative. So they just said, we need to put you in the intensive care unit. We do have one bed available for you. I think I got the only bed that was available oh at that time. I'm 41. I was 40 at the time. They said, you know, you're young, you're one of the healthiest people who've come through here. I didn't have diabetes, which was one of the big common things that they were seeing, you know, nothing. I was just a relatively healthy person, save for a few extra pounds here. Uh, there's nothing wrong with me inherently. Mm. So they said, okay, we'll probably have you in here for about 10 days. We'll figure about five, six days in the ICU, five, six days in a, in a step down room, and then you can go home. And they were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> So how many days was it total in the hospital? 26 days in the hospital total. 19 and, of those were in the ICU. And I, I noticed that you chose that 26 as the 26 things you wanted to highlight. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what were the things that you wanted to highlight and how did you choose those things? I mean, it was really quite remarkable to read about it. Well, 26 is a lot more than I expected when I, when I first sat down. I thought, oh God, this is a lot of stuff. But it, I ended up filling it pretty quickly. Because uh, it was a lot to remember. And there's some, obviously, there's stuff I left off. I wanted to paint a full picture. So, you know, there's some things in there that are, are really scary, you know, some really horrific experiences. And some of them were a little mundane. So give us some examples, some terrifying and some mundane. You know, the uh, one memory I'll never forget is the first time they made me walk. I'm going to say it was maybe around day six in there. They finally got me up walking. And I have never been so scared. All of my breath left me. I mean, I had a mask on, you know, I mean, I was under the aid of an intense mm. amount of oxygen, but it just, my legs were weak. 
everything. I mean, so you're deconditioned. Yes. Plus you have the COVID. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, I was developing anemia. Mm-hmm. Everything's working against you. They wanted me to try going to the, the regular bathroom as opposed to the little commode thing that they'd sit next to the bed. Yeah. And so, I mean, we're talking 10, 12 feet. Yeah. And so, you know, I got about halfway there and <laughs> my body let loose. <laughs> I did not make it to the toilet uh, to do my business. Oh, and, uh, you know, the nurses are very gracious about these sorts of things. But of course, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm out of breath. Now I'm, you know, embarrassed yeah. and, you know, a bit humiliated. And so eventually she got me all the way there. I sat on the toilet and I, it took me forever. It took me forever to catch my breath. I mean, the whole ordeal was about 45 minutes. And this is a, a 10 foot walk to the bathroom and back. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a, a striking example of how serious illness is uh, dehumanizing for people. And that was one of the things that sort of carried through your description is all these things one takes for granted, you really couldn't do at all. Yes. And part of that is what I would maybe characterize as health privilege. Yeah. I've never had anything wrong with me. I mean, mm-hmm. I had my appendix out when I was 21. That, that's, that was the extent of my like serious medical history. So I'd never once experienced anything remotely close to this. Um, you know, in the appendix, it was what a three day hospital stay at best. I mean, it was, there was really nothing to it. It was all new to me. Um, and then the, for the first experience to be that serious within the first 72 hours, I was asked about an advanced directive. I was asked how I felt about a ventilator. Mm. You know, there was a lot of probing questions that led me to believe things were extremely extraordinarily serious and maybe more than they were directly letting on. And later in my stay, I found out I was right. Once I was clearly out of the woods, they were a bit more candid with how how close I came to a vet. Yeah. You also mentioned that you at one point hallucinated. Yeah. um, I mentioned hallucinations and people sort of automatically get this this idea that you're having some sort of acid flashback you know, to get this very like psychedelic view of a, of what a hallucination is. And really for me, what it was, was, which is the definition of a hallucination, but seeing things that aren't there. Yeah. And the frequent one for me was out of the corner of my eye. I, I always thought I saw my dog walking around on the floor. Mm. I love my dog. And it was kind of almost a comforting feeling in some ways, but I knew my dog wasn't there. So I knew something was Things weren't firing right in, in my brain at that point. The nurses and doctors always were seemingly over my shoulder. Mm-hmm. So they're adjusting things and, and, and whatnot. When they weren't there, I always sort of saw them there. <laughs> like uh-huh. there was just a lot of like visual sort of disturbances. Uh, and they weren't super like vivid. Like I said, I wasn't seeing colors and things. You know, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't like that. Yeah, but it can be very, very upsetting. It was because I knew something was wrong. <laughs> yeah, and and then there's lots of other physical discomforts you described very well. Uh, you want to highlight some of those? Yes, um, the proning was very uncomfortable. Uh, I am not a stomach sleeper. My wife is. I think she would have handled proning like a champ. <laughs> I did not handle it well at all. They had me prone in spurts. So proning, for those who don't know, is you you basically lie flat on your stomach. So I went back and forth for the first uh, week, week and a half between a BiPAP mask and the high flow nasal cannula. Also not comfortable. No, neither one of those are comfortable, but the BiPAP mask is really intrusive. And so it's very difficult to lie down. So like your head's cocked to the side, but you're on your stomach. 
So they would have me go in one and two hour cycles. So I get go two hours, then I get to take a break for a couple hours, and then I go back. And one of the things that I learned, one of my creature comforts was music. Mm-hmm. And so I would sit there and when I knew I was going to prone, I would identify like a two hour album. <laughs> so the Allman Brothers Live at Fillmore East was my two hour proning album. Good choice. Thank you. Yeah. And then I had my one hour albums and that's how I got through proning. But then at other times I said, try not to lie on your back, which I was fine with. So I'd lie on my side, but I mm-hmm. favored one side because of all the equipment that was on me. Also, there was the side that my table was on, which is where I had my iPad prep propped up where I was watching television and things like that. So I laid on my right side almost all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up with nerve damage. Yeah. <laughs> so this uh, parasthetic myalgia, I've talked to the doctor several times about it. And he says, no, you have this now. There's technically a surgery we can do, but I don't recommend it. And PT can help a little bit, but basically you're going to have a partially numb leg for the rest of your life. Yeah. How did the hospital handle visitors? We had none. Mm. I was not allowed any visitors. It was FaceTime only. In the thread, I mentioned this, I lost my voice. Yeah. At first, especially, they were pumping a lot of oxygen into me. And so it just made me so hoarse that I could barely talk. So the first week, week and a half, my relationship with my wife was texting, Mm. which is terrible. That's all I had. I I mean, she she was like, can we FaceTime yet? I said, well, we can. You can stare at me, but... One, I don't look great. And two, like you're, I, I can barely talk. Hmm. So, I mean, you decided to post some pictures as well. Yeah. At the very last second, I wasn't going to do that. My concern was if I didn't have some sort of evidence, people wouldn't believe me hmm. or they would think I was embellishing. And I still got some of that. There were still some trolls on the internet who insisted I was either making things up or embellishing. Um, but I posted the pictures at the end, mostly so people could see the masks. Mm. I mean, everyone's sort of familiar with the, with the standard cannula. I mean, we've all seen that on, on television. I mean, even if you've had minor surgery, you probably have had one of those. Not many people have seen the high flow, and certainly most people haven't seen the BiPAP. I mean, it's similar to like a CPAP machine. So if you have sleep apnea, maybe you've seen something like it. But uh, I wanted people to get a clear picture of what those look like. Mm. So obviously you're in the hospital, you're in intensive care. There's going to be a lot of tests. How did that go? The blood tests were always at about four o'clock in the morning. And I didn't understand why. I thought this was a bit cruel, but they explained to me that, you know, the doctors and nurses all meet at seven o'clock to go over every case in the ICU. And then they plan treatment for the day. So they need those diagnostics by that point. So I was like, okay, I kind of get it, but this is still not great. No, We're talking six, seven tubes too. So this isn't like a short sleep interruption. You're woken up. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult to fall back to sleep. I had music for that too, incidentally. I, not the Allman Brothers. No, not, no, 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 not the Allman Brothers. A little more classical than all that. But it was an interruption and, you know, they turned the light on because they have to be able to see. And then I think the whole time I was in there, I had three or four chest films done and they do them right in the bed. But those were like two o'clock in the morning. They (laughs) jacked the bed way up. They put this really hard board behind you. And it's a quick process, but it's still a two o'clock in the morning wake up call. And admittedly, sometimes I was still up because sleep was not easy to come by. But then they'd leave and then you just start to doze off. And it's four o'clock in the morning. And guess who comes at four? The guy (laughs) with the needles. So I slept during the day pretty regularly. And eventually they moved me to a chair, um, which was nice. I forget how far in I was. It was about a week 
Then they're like, we're have you sitting in a chair. And so during the day, they did not want me lying in bed. I sat upright. Yeah, that's a strategy to help fight the atrophy of your muscles just to get you out of bed. But it's not easy at first for people to be in a chair. It was not easy at first, no. But after a while, I loved it. Like I couldn't wait until morning nurse would come in and she was like, okay, time to go to the chair. I would spend all day there. And it was usually around seven, eight o'clock at night that I'd be like, okay, I got to go back to the bed now. So. And how about monitoring your blood pressure? <laughs> oh yes. You have EKG leads on you. You've got pulse ox on your finger, but then you also have this blood pressure cuff that's on you. It's 24 seven. It would come off when I would go to the bathroom or move to the chair and then immediately go back on. So it, was all, it would only come off for the minute or two I needed mobility. And it goes off every hour (laughs) on the hour and it squeezes you. I mean, this thing is automatic. You know, at first it was really, really intrusive, but I mentioned this in the thread that finally I sort of befriended my cuff. It was like tantamount to the volleyball and castaway that Tom Hanks just eventually like Wilson, Wilson. Yeah. But my cuff's name was Frank incidentally. And when it comes on, it doesn't squeeze hard right away. It's almost this little gentle squeeze first before it fully kicks in. So it's almost like somebody like nicely grabbing your arm. Hmm. So it was comfortable. I was like, Hey Frank, how you doing? You know, I mean, it just kind of, <laughs> it maybe some of that is a little ICU delirium, but I, I needed to entertain myself and I was looking for any sort of connection. Yeah. You mentioned about how time changes and how you just said that your sleep cycle was strange. What about time in general? I mean, do you feel like, you know, the days went by? Did you know the days of the week? Days of the week, no. Um, That was difficult. The time of the day, I had some inkling because that was the wake-up call. And I knew the nurses' schedules. And also, I was up. I mean, I was watching television. You know, I watch a lot, a lot of television. (laughs) And so, you know, based on what was on TV, you know, I had a general sense of the time. But the, the window I had wasn't much of anything to the outside. So like the sunlight cycle, I couldn't really get a good grasp on. Plus it's November in Wisconsin. So it's light out for like four hours or something. Yeah, of course. (laughs) And so that was a little bit difficult. Days of the week, I knew how many days I was in. A very like, very prison movie. I was definitely keeping a tally. I was also keeping a daily diary if you You were on Facebook. I was, yeah. So I would post a near daily update with, you know, how many days I've been in. It was about as raw and candid as the thread with some exceptions. Uh, Since it was family and friends reading this in real time, I did hold back some of the ugliness um, just because I didn't want to need hundreds of people who care about me worrying too, too terribly much. But I did this the entire time I was in. And at first it was out of necessity because I needed to slow down all the text messages because people were bothering me. Good, well-intentioned bothering me, but at the same time, it was just getting to be too much. So finally I said, stop with the messages. I appreciate everyone, but stop. I will post updates. So I have a full chronicle of my time in there as well. I mean, that that was very generous of you for your friends and family, because I'm sure they were worried about you. And it does take energy to generate that text about how you're doing. My training is in journalism and it's a hard habit to break. When you're in a situation, there's a desire to chronicle things. It's, yeah. I, it's never been beaten out of me. So, so uh, how about creature comforts? The food, the bedding, the towels? Food, it was as good as it was going to be. <laughs> be be but I get it. I mean, it's, it's a hospital. They're not going to chef salt your food for you. It's meant to be as sort of everybody's palate Everybody, you know, it can't be spicy. It can't be too salty. You know, there's all these things that they're just flat out not going to do. So I understood that. And if you're in there for a week, it's passable. If you're in there a month, it's tedious. 
especially because it's not exactly a lengthy menu either. You know, you have certain selections. And then I found my favorites. Their chicken soup was actually quite good. So I ate a whole bunch of it. At least I knew what I was getting with that. The worst is like, if you get a bad meal, you can't send it back and then like ask for another. It's sort of, this is what you're getting. So that was tough. It's not a hotel, but you're just vaguely uncomfortable all the time. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm delighted that you got better, but let's talk about the transition from the hospital to home because that can be very challenging. What was that like? The worst one, weirdly, the most startling one was the transition from the ICU to the regular room. Ah, okay. I had spent three weeks having lab results in real time. When those results would come through, it would come through on my Epic app. So I, I knew what my D-dimer level was. I knew what ferritin was at. I knew all of these things, which is a blessing and a curse, by the way. But I also knew my blood pressure. I knew my respiration rate. I knew my blood oxygen. I had all of these things. So I knew in real time how I was doing. I also knew that if something went south, somebody would be in that room within seconds. Yep. All of a sudden, this stuff that you hated the first week that you became used to, and then you begin to rely on it. Hmm. And the next thing you know, they yank it away from you. Hmm. And so the first night I was in a room, I was a regular cannula. I was on maybe like five liters of oxygen, which was really low at that point and nothing else. I didn't know my blood oxygen. I was hooked up to nothing, which was very comfortable, but I was horrified. Uh I was so scared that whole night. Okay. Anxious about something would be missed. Got it. Yes, okay. exactly. To the point where eventually they brought me a portable pulse ox mm. machine. Um, just they just like, we're going to let you have that for a day or two, but then we need to wean you off of this. I mean, they knew how dependent I was getting on it and how difficult that was going to be long term if they didn't start getting me off of that now. Yeah, I'll share with you that some patients actually feel the opposite when they leave intensive care. They're so relieved not to be pestered all the time that they sleep better and and they just feel more relaxed. But I guess both reactions are valid. That was my hope. I thought, oh my God, I finally get out of here. This is great. And then I'm in the bed, in the room, and the nurse leaves and I'm all alone with nothing. Mm. Yeah, I freaked out basically. Um, But we talk about the transition home. It was much the same, but at this point I was a little more used to not having some of those, you know, the diagnostics and those things. But you lose another safety net, which is having doctors and nurses right there. Mm -hmm. So here you are at home. I was on oxygen at home for an additional 27 days. Wow. Wow. Very little oxygen. They wouldn't let me go home until I was down to two liters of oxygen. But I sat on two liters of oxygen for almost another three weeks. Wow. Once the physical therapy kicked in, my PT got me off of oxygen in a hurry, which was great. So you made the decision to go forward with a very public post about your experience. Share with us why you chose to do it. Because people need to know. I was going to write something shortly after I got out of the hospital. Again, it's just my second nature to do that. But then we got to a place of vaccines. Mm -hmm. The numbers here in Wisconsin, at least, and and I followed it pretty closely to a national trend, kind of plummeted down from May into June and the start yep. of July. Right. I mean, same, we were, same everywhere. Yes. And so I held back. I said, maybe I don't need to preach, <laughs> you know, at this point, yeah. maybe, maybe we're going to get through this and I can just move on. And then it became abundantly clear that roughly half the people in this country were not going to get vaccinated. Hmm. And 
then the number started climbing again. And then, you know, I was coming up on the one year anniversary of being admitted. And I, you know, that was weighing on my mind. And I thought I, I need the catharsis. I need to do something. And I thought people still need to hear this story. Yeah. And I put it on Twitter. I, I don't know how many followers I had at the time, a thousand or something like that, but just a lot of Milwaukee people, people <laughs> who know me. So it was a bit of an echo chamber. I thought you know, some people will read this and it'll be fine. It would get attention because it's provocative, but I didn't think what, I mean, it, there's like 15,000 likes on it and thousands of retweets yeah. and engagements and, and it's a thread too. So it's not just the main post. It's all the, all the ones beneath that have their own uh, individual, you know, likes and retweets. So it was an explosive response yeah, and one that I was not fully anticipating. And at first I was a bit overwhelmed and like, I don't want this. I, you know, I, I kind of wish I could unring the bell. And then I thought, no, no, you know, 99% of the people on here are, are doing exactly what I wanted them to do, which is to say, share this and reinforce this idea that this thing is not over and the vaccine is our way out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and, and that's it. This is simple. This stopped being complicated months ago. This yeah. is really quite simple. And people just aren't listening. Yeah, I've read many such accounts. And I've also obviously seen quite a few people with this, and they've described it to me directly. But there was something about your depiction of how uncomfortable and dehumanizing a hospitalization can be that was very skillfully done, because it included the profound observations like being terrified of dying, plus the the mundane ones, which are in some ways overlooked. I mean, it really, as I said, should be required reading for any person in healthcare. Any negative comments? Oh, sure. It's the internet. It's Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, as I pointed out to somebody, I said, you know, 20 years in PR, my skin is thicker than their heads, I promise <laughs> you. So I'm totally fine with it. Um, like I said, everything from your embellishing this or flat out made this up, which I wish I were that creative. I would have multiple book deals if I were that good. And, and you know, and the, the exaggeration is a funny one to me too, because I actually held back on a few things. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I laugh at that. The, the decision to include the pictures was where I knew I was going to get some, because I'm not going to say I'm not overweight. I talked to the doctors and nurses when I was in there because I felt a bit like I was at fault. Mm. And they're like, no, no, you are 40 years old. The next youngest person in here is like 15, 20 years older than you. And that's been the case. Age is the number one thing working against you in here. You are one of the youngest people we've seen. You have no pre-existing conditions. You came in here with other than the COVID textbook health. Yes, you have extra weight, but you also compared to most of the people we've seen through here, you're, you're fine. But I knew the pictures, people would say, oh, well, this guy's chubby. So clearly that's your problem. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, first of all, they're not exactly flattering photos. You can strap a, <laughs> you strap a BiPAP mask to anybody's face and it's going to look fat. <laughs> yeah. I knew it was coming and I thought, whatever. But honestly, if I wanted to take the time to do the math on it, it was maybe 1% or less of people yeah. who responded that was mean-spirited or dismissive. And the other 99 plus percent yep. was hugely supportive. Great. So I'm going to ask you uh, whether in your personal life, especially close friends or family, whether you know anyone who has chosen not to be vaccinated and what your response to them is. <laughs> oh, that's so tough. Yes, there are people close to me who have chosen not to get vaccinated. I've cut those people out. 
And it's tough to say because, you know, these are people that I, you know, that I care about. But at the same time, I went through something really, really difficult. Mm. And I need positivity around me. And I need people who care about other people. Yeah. And if you're going to be that dismissive, it's a cruel indifference. Yeah. And I take it super personally. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not directed at me personally, I take it personally. I just don't need that around me. I sat down with these people and I tried to explain and I tried to reason with them. You know, when you're talking to a wall, you know, when no amount of information mm-hmm. that you share is going to make a difference. And so I, I refuse to be blue in the face ever again. And I'm, I'm sure not going to do it by talking <laughs> to someone who's not going to listen. So yeah. How's your health today? Good. Great. I walked away with an arrhythmia, mm. SVT, supraventricular tachycardia, but I am on a low dose calcium channel blocker for that. And all's well at the moment. Excellent. So the drug is working. I don't have the wind that I once did. You know, I definitely still feel some after effects. Mm-hmm. You know, it's exercise is difficult, but some of it is what my doctor described the other day as perceived exertion. So some of it is when you exercise, you are going to get a little short of breath. I mean, that's just, that's what aerobic exercise does. But in my head, I perceive it as more traumatic mm-hmm. than, than it is. And he says, that's understandable. And you're, you're going to get there. But I had a chest x-ray just um, to put my mind at ease. And my lungs are perfectly clear. Uh, and, and I saw the films from the hospital too. And that was once not the case. We're talking just opaque. Lungs aren't yeah. supposed to show up white on a chest film these were pretty darn white right so uh, and now they are they look like lungs again well chris um in addition to sharing how much we like dogs uh looks like groucho marx is another another shared love yes absolutely i'm a marx brothers fan since i was young interestingly one of the other people i've interviewed who had covid is a famous infectious disease doctor dr michael sag and he is a huge Groucho Marx fan. So, If there's anything that you can take to the hospital with you, it ought to be a sense of humor. And I, I did that. My Facebook posts, I had to pepper them with at least a little humor when I could, when I was in that right headspace, just because you will go nuts. It mm-hmm. is a tough place to be, especially the longer you're in there. Anyway, I want to thank Chris Stolarski, who has joined us to describe his experience with a severe case of COVID-19 and how he use that negative experience to really turn something positive out of it, which is sharing his difficult time in the hospital and the hope that it will convince some people to be vaccinated. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.